This is the Rock and Roll Autopsy Podcast. I'm going to zap her again. Charge up the paddles. Come on, let's go, let's go. Sorry, Doctor. Hold the compressions. Clear. Straight line. Good evening and welcome to Rock and Roll Autopsy. We are the phone. Forensic Files on your radio dial. My name is Scott, and have we got a great show for you tonight? No, we don't. Damn it, the phone is ringing again. It's the request line. All right, let's pick it up. WRNRA, East of the Rockies. Hey, Breather, what's going on, man? You're bummed that so many bands are using pre-recorded tracks on stage? Me too, man. Seems to go against the spirit of rock and roll. What do you mean if you wanted to listen to pre-recorded tripe, you just download our podcast? Listen, you called the request line. Is there a song you'd like us to perform an autopsy on? Don't stand so close to me. By the police? You got it. All right, buckle up, gang. The subject of our rock and roll autopsy tonight will be Don't Stand So Close to Me by punky reggae rockers, the police. We'll get the show started after these very important messages from our sponsors. World Tour 85. August 7th at Pittsburgh Civic Arena. your leather together. The Caesar Ingler welcomes Motley Crue and YMT. Pittsburgh, handle it! Breaking news! What is this garbage you're watching? Hey, I want to watch the news. news. This is the news. All right, gang, we've got our intrepid rock and roll beat reporter on the line, Rico Cronkite, seven-time Silver Sow Award winner. Rico, how are you, sir? Good evening, Mr. Rattan. I am well, and how are you this evening? Man, I am ready for the rock and roll news only a man of your gravitas and esteem can deliver. Wow, that's uh, setting the bar pretty high for me there. Um, I feel like now that the dust has kind of maybe settled a tad that we could finish talking about this Motley Crue bullshit that's going on. So I think we we did talk about this before a little bit um, off mic, um, but we never really haven't had a chance to go full conversation. So where are we right now? Let's just kind of review. Um because there's some stuff that happened since we talked about it off bike. So Mick Mars is 25% of Motley Crue. 
they're kicking him out of the band because they said he sucks. He says they've been playing backing tracks and I've been carrying the band. Um, Nikki Six says, fuck you. I'm getting John Five, my friend. We're not. So the original thing was they weren't going to. They, they said they weren't making new music. But now here's the part we haven't had a chance to talk about. Not not. And I think this is a big F you to make Mars. So now Nikki Six says, well, we're going to be making some new music now. And so you're not going to be involved in that because John Five is going to be involved with us making new music. And so you can't be involved with that now. And so now as board members of the Motley Crue Corporation, they're trying to fire him because that's, I think legally, that's the only way you can get rid of him is by being board members. You can fire another board member via vote. And so I think they're using articles of incorporation, so to speak, in order to get rid of this guy. It's bad, dude. Has it always been this bad between him and those guys or does it just kind of develop late in life? Or are they just cooking this shit up because they're getting pressed for it? Help me out here. I, you know, I don't know if it's always been this bad. Well, let's let's back up a minute here. One thing we have to acknowledge is that Mick Mars is, I think, like 10 years older than them. Mm-hmm. So from the get-go, when the band first started in the early 80s, he was the odd man out, right? Yep. And so he didn't really fit in with those kids. So he never really fit in with the band. Okay. But his contributions cannot be denied. And he's probably the closest thing the band has to an actual musician. Right. Having said that, fast forward to where we're at now. I, I'm just surprised that John Five has a reputation for being, and I've listened to multiple interviews. I love his guitar playing. I love his... I love his affection for um, Roy Clark and Hee Haw. <laughs> I love, uh, you know, his music is great. And every podcast and interview I hear him on, he's just the nicest guy. And he has yep. a reputation for being one of the good guys in rock music. He's a sober guy. He's not a drug or alcohol guy. Um, but this feels like and just going along with this feels kind of to your point, the articles of incorporation kind of going along with this to rid themselves of Mick Mars. It's kind of so a surprising kind of thing to see John five a part of. Um, and the other thing it kind of like, I think people forget about and that I don't really hear anybody talk about. It's been a ton of mudslinging. Uh, we talked about it in a previous podcast. You've done a nice job of outlining kind of where it is now. Um, and the mudslinging has gone back and forth, but Nick, uh, Mick Mars is, he's sick, you know, he is, he's, he's not well healthy. You know, he's not a healthy man. He's got this disease where his spine is fusing together. The band agreed to, and had a big send off, a big retirement send off. And he probably thought, Thank God I'm done with this. I can fucking retire. I'm old and I'm in poor health. And then they drag him out of retirement for this uh, Def Leppard tour that did really, really well. And the money is coming in and it's probably more than he really bargained for. Anyhow, you know, the commitment has probably gone longer than he ever anticipated, especially given how, you know, what poor health he is in. So, I don't know, man. The whole situation's pretty, pretty fucking gross. It's also kind of funny 
you know um the whole backing track thing it's funny because we know Nikki six is a lousy bass player and we know vince neal's a terrible singer so they're kind of a train wreck of, of a band it's kind of funny but there's also some parts of it that aren't kind of funny it's like why is john five allowing his reputation to kind of be dragged down with this shit? and mcmars is sick you know he's a he's a unhealthy unwell old man you know well and the other thing he he's had he had this disease way back in the late 70s when he got when he first got into the band he had it so yeah. they've they've known for 40 years what they've been up against with this guy and it's a fucking miracle that he lasted this long yeah so, and the fact that they're like jobbing him like this is just baffling to me because he, to your point he's like the the most real musician in the band like can you imagine <laughs> can you imagine having a dude that doesn't really play bass that well and tommy lee who can kind of almost play the drums a little bit and 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 vince neal holy christ have you heard his vocals lately oh my god they're they're like awful dude and this guy like he okay tell, give me a give me anybody who's on tour who's older than 60 who doesn't fuck up once in a while shit there's video of keith richards i saw one he forgot the <laughs> beginning of a song and he just was laughing and he just was laughing about it he's fucking he's like i'm fucking eighty thousand years old yeah. and he doesn't care and they just keep trucking along because fucking keith richards just announces to everybody I didn't remember this shit and I don't care because it's, it doesn't matter. And so my point is these guys are going to mess up and that's the, that's the pressure that they're all under. When you have backing tracks, people expect what they hear in the studio and there's no room for error now. And so when somebody fucks up live, it's a huge deal and be in the past. And you can speak to this probably a lot more than I can in the past before all this backing tracks when people were actually playing live it didn't matter as much when people messed up in fact it gave it a little bit of flavor right but now because we've got backing track we can nobody can afford to mess up because everybody is used to listening perfection digitally created and presented perfection and so there's no room for messing up and so the fact that mixed mars messes up a little bit here and there is a huge deal now when 20 30 years ago it wouldn't have mattered one single bit in fact nobody would have thought twice about it yeah and and it's and he's playing heavy metal right so there's as simplistic as motley Crue's music is there isn't a ton of room it's not like what the rolling stones play it's almost like sloppiness is kind of built into the music right but with right. heavy metal it's got to be a little tighter but did you hear the the YouTube clip I sent of you of Mick Mars's in ear monitors that someone put on sure YouTube? Did. That was fascinating. I, Can I ask I you a question? Do you think yeah. you could play a gig listening to that? Oh my God! Okay, so this just to kind of go back a little bit. So this this is a clip of him. Do you remember what song it was? Well, there were three songs on yeah, there. I think one okay. of them might have been Girls, Girls, Girls. and Okay, yeah. So so he had himself in his monitors, which that's not unusual, right? 
there was no bass there was no drums and a hint of vocals just to kind of steer the ship a little bit but 98 percent of what was coming into his ears was his own guitar i i can't imagine how hard that would be to stay on track when you're not listening to anybody else well the click track alone would give me a migraine after a show. right it's just the loudest metronome ever in your yeah. ears and then like a speaking voice would come in like before a chorus and it would say like chorus three two one and count it down to let him know yeah. like when the chorus yeah. was coming up but like you couldn't hear tommy lee you couldn't hear any bass at all it was just no, the nothing. loudest metronome ever the guide track voice telling him when the choruses were coming up and just like you said just a sliver of vince neal just a sliver and loud guitar he's probably been doing it that way for so long that he probably prefers that over listening to i mean would you would you would you want to hear vince neal trying to work through a song and and how bad that sounds or the backing tracks the only thing the only foundational thing that's going to get him through these songs are a click track and somebody talking cues in his ear that's probably that's probably the only thing that keeps him on track all right let's let's do one more news item and do a quick one okay all right one, one quick one so I, I i i thought and we all thought that that ozzy was done because how could he not be done he's he's uh he's sick he's got bad bad spinal injury he can't even walk without a cane but sure enough the the uh, power trip festival this fall. Guess who's headlining? The Prince of Darkness. It's going to be ACDC, Iron Maiden, or among other bands. Metallica is going to be there. And yes, they're trotting out Ozzy in a wheelchair or a walker or a hospital bed or whatever kind of marionette strings they have to pull. And he is headlining this music festival. Holy shit, Scott! Yeah, um, I don't, I'm starting to think that like Sharon ought to be arrested for elder abuse. I think Ozzy Osbourne. I'm imploring if anyone listens to this podcast, let's start like a let's start a petition online or something, and for Ozzy to retire. I don't want to see anybody performing. It's almost like you know Phil Collins is on stage like in a wheelchair now, and he's like a, he's like officially you know he's done. Ozzy is got please for the love of god somebody let's start a petition let's raise money let's raise awareness ozzy needs to retire sharon this is insanity who wants to see ozzy osbourne with a cane on stage or being propped up by a brace that's hidden by a trench coat i don't want to see that it's going to be all smoke and mirrors man they're going to trot this fucker out let him retire for god he's got nothing else to contribute he doesn't need he doesn't have to prove anything else he's the prince of fucking darkness man like he and he and his band invented heavy metal let it go let this guy retire sharon it just speaks to when you look at and i'm going to ask you one question and let's wrap because mm -hmm. we're going long but it just yeah. speaks to how dead rock and roll is that for this power trip festival you have three nights, October 6th, 7th, and 8th. 
Friday night, Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden. Saturday night, ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne. And Sunday night, Metallica and Tool. All bands that are 30, 40, 50 years old. You oh know what I mean? So let me ask you a question though, real quick. Which night would yeah. you go to? Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? Friday is Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden. Saturday is ACDC and Ozzy Osbourne. And Sunday is Metallica and Tool. Which one are you going to? Metallica and Tool. I have seen Guns N' Roses. I've seen Iron Maiden. I've seen Ozzy Osbourne a couple times. I've seen Metallica like probably, oh God, five times. I've seen Tool twice. The only band here that I haven't seen is ACDC, and it's probably my favorite band from childhood. So I'm going Saturday night. I'm going to see ACDC, and then I'm going to leave when Ozzy comes on. Oh, good. Uh, you know what? I, that, 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 that would be good. If I'm allowed to leave and only watch one of them, I might, I might join you and watch ACDC and then just leave and go get some White Castle or something. Yeah, we're old. We always leave concerts early at this point. True. True. So, having said that, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about a band who purposely tried to start a feud with Rush just for the publicity. That's right. We're going to talk to police. So, hang out. We'll be right back. America, demand your MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. MTV, music, television, video, music, 24 hours a day, and it's stereo. Call your cable company and say, I want my MTV! We are gathered here to remember rock and roll. Rock was born the rambunctious son of country, western, and blues. In the year of our Lord, 1955, on this day, the birth of rock and roll, gifted under the world a gyrating pelvis, a throbbing beat, and a pulsating rhythm, a sound so infectious and rollicking that it would endow previously scrupulous young minds with identity, individualism, and purpose, thus setting forth a multi-generational pursuit of all that is loud, debaucherous, and unholy. But, sadly, like all earthly endeavors, rock too must perish. Oh, we mourn the loss of rock and roll, with its ridiculously old standard bearers still on tour and charging ungodly amounts of mad jack to witness their long past the sell by date asses on stage and with its chauvinism, misogyny and whiteness no longer aligning with modern sensibilities and with its aging, fist-shaking fan base kicking every would-be rocker off their proverbial lawn, rock has indeed passed into the celestial void. May rock rest in peace in eternal cacophonous slumber. Amen. Thank you for that, Scott. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Autopsy Podcast. The Autopsy Report. 
All right, ladies and germs, welcome back. We're going to be talking about Don't Stand So Close to Me by the Police. This song was on the album Zenyata Mandata, um, recorded in 1980. It's about four minutes and two seconds. A&M is the label. Sting wrote the song. Nigel Gray, Stuart Copeland, Sting, Andy Summers, they all helped produce it. Uh there you go, Scott. I want to want to have as much time to do this autopsy as possible. Thank you very much, Rico. You're a good man, a gentleman, and a scholar. It's rock and roll autopsy tonight. We've got the police, Sting, Stuart Copeland, Andy Summers, a threesome. <clears throat> anyway, I oh. <laughs> Question is. Did Don't Stand So Close to Me kill rock and roll? There's only one way to find out, kids, and that's to use our scientific method, our proprietary categories that determine whether or not the song killed rock and roll. They are gratuitous boomerism, excessive misogyny, wanton whiteness, malignant machismo, and culture vulturism. Let's dive right in, Rico. The category is gratuitous boomerism. We haven't done this in two weeks, and I actually have to take whatever I'm doing. It. That's pretty bad, dude. What are we doing? I don't know. But category one, gratuitous boomerism. Don't stand so close to me. Rico, what say you? Um, so police by first of all, i I think we're both big police fans. So um let's just get that out of the way. I love I love all their music. I think it's cool as hell. Um boomerism uh he, he gets the obligatory 0.5 just right off the bat for sure right he's totally a boomer um but you know it, this is white british people doing borderline reggae style rock punk um is that boomerish though no i don't think there's anything really in my opinion that's going to give this really any more than the obligatory 0.5. So I'm just going to stick with the 0.5, Scott. Yeah, I I uh, have to go ahead and give the obligatory 0.5 for the age of the members involved, with the exception of Andy Summers, who is now, are you sitting down? Uh, he, yeah, hold us, you know. He's 80. What? Yeah, Andy cool. Summers. Andy Summers is interesting. Did you know he played with Jimi Hendrix back in the day? That's how freaking old Andy wow. Summers is. Oldest guy in the band, predates boomerism. The other guys fall into the category, though, but still going hey, to two two out of the three. Yeah, thank you. A little bit of mathematics. Thank you, sir. Yeah, still going to go with a 0.5 on that. <laughs> as, as far as the song itself, yeah, I'm yeah. not seeing a lot of boomerism here. Um, no. So like, I like, we're, like we're talking, is there something about this song that makes it unrelatable now is, is I guess, and I'm not really, to me, the music holds up the subject matter holds up. Um, so there's really nothing unrelatable of other, other than, I don't know. I guess the closest thing you can come up with is maybe again, the style of the music, maybe, but I think it holds up. I don't know how you feel about that though. Yeah, I mean, I think it holds up for the most part. Maybe we'll get to that later, but I'm going to yep. stick with a 0.5. Let's move on, Rico. Okay. Category two, this should be interesting. 
The category is excessive misogyny. We're trying to figure out if Don't Stand So Close to Me killed rock and roll. I have the lyrics available to me if you need to hear them. Excessive misogyny, Rico, what say you? I would like to hear some lyrics if you would like to hit me with some. Absolutely. Young teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. She wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside her, there's longing. The girl's an open page. Bookmarking, she's so close now. This girl is half his age. Don't stand, don't stand so, don't stand so close to me, times two. Her friends are so jealous. You know how bad girls get. Sometimes it's not so easy to be the teacher's pet. Temptation, frustration, so bad it makes him cry. Wet bus stop, she's waiting. His car is warm and dry. Do you want me to go ahead and finish the last two verses? Uh, if you would like, but I, I'm good. But if you want to keep going, you can. That's, I'll leave it up to you. Go ahead. Let's get to your take. Yeah. So we one thing to, to keep in mind here is Sting is a nerdy English teacher. And he in in this 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 song is based on the book Lolita um, about an older man who pursues underage girls. Okay, so that's kind of where he got the idea for this um, because he is a nerdy English teacher, and only nerdy English teachers would write would write rock and roll songs about the book Lolita. Uh, having said that, it's about an older creeper guy who's 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 you know pursuing a young very young girl and there is definitely misogynistic aspect to that um i want to give it i don't know if i don't know if i can give this a full 1.0 only because he was inspired by a very famous book in order to write this song i gotta do at least a 0.5 on this um damn that's a tough one. I think I'm going to, um, man, dude, I think I got to, I'm going to get blasted for this. I'm going to stick with the point five. Yeah. It's interesting because not only yes, the Lolita angle, but sting in 1993, I'm reading from Wikipedia here says of the songs inspiration. You have to remember we were blonde bombshells at the time Sting, always very humble says we were blonde bombshells at the time and most of our fans were young girls so i started role-playing a bit let's exploit that so he's playing with the idea of them being i'm assuming at the time probably gentlemen in their mid-20s and then all their fans are you know in high school or junior high for sure and so he's that was the inspiration right to write this lolita themed song because right not that they were acting on it, but they were aware of the youth of their fan base. Yes. As far as the misogyny, it's interesting because you're talking about the creeper teacher, but it is in the song very carefully kind of almost verse for verse tit for tat laid out that she has a crush on him as well and so it's more like the forbidden fruit kind of thing between the both of them know 
that this attraction is pulling them towards something they shouldn't do, but it's mutual. Okay. Now, granted, she's underage, and I'm assuming there's a consent angle here, not just legally, but ethically, right? But it is laid out in the first, very first stanza of the song Young teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. She right. wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. And then in the second verse, it flips around to him feeling the temptation, right? Her friends are so jealous. So all these girls are jealous too, because they, they see this kind of like, you know, this attraction between the two of them. And I'm thinking that it's from the male perspective, the chorus of don't stand so close to me because he doesn't want to be tempted. He knows that he shouldn't be doing this. So I think he's, I think this is from his perspective. Am I, am I the only one who sees it that way? No, I definitely see your point, and I think that's probably why I can't do a full one on this because of those reasons. There's not enough. It's there's I can't completely excuse it by giving it a zero, but there's not. It's not full on in your face enough to give it a one. So I feel like I compromised with myself and went with the point five. But yeah, I see exactly what you're seeing. And that that would I can't excuse it and give it a zero because there is some of that there because he's he's objectifying a teenage girl. And even though she's got the crush on him, she's a teenager and they don't really know shit from shit, you know, right. so I, I can't completely excuse it and give it an zero and give it a zero. But it's not it, there's enough there to, to take it down from a one to a point five. So you're not crazy. I see everything that you see totally. I would like to point out um, this verse here, I think is one of the most, I didn't read it. I'm going to read it right now. It's yep. one of the most brilliant examples of what a great lyricist sting is because it mm -hmm. utilizes only four lines. There's no 50 cent words. There's no, you know, multiple syllable references to some, you know, intelligentsia. It's, it's very simplistically written, but what's in between the lines is so brilliant and unsaid. The verse is temptation, frustration, so bad it makes him cry. Wet bus stop, she's waiting. His car is warm and dry. The simplest words, but it tells you everything that could happen and maybe did happen is about to happen. It, it's got it all in those four lines that are just real simple and all the action and all the subtext is like literally in between the lines and up to interpretation. It's not spelled out. It's not spoon fed. It doesn't assume the listener is dumb. You know, it's just brilliantly written lyrics. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, I, I agree completely. His, his, uh, his wordplay and, and a lot of his songs, uh, I can think of so many songs uh that i just his wordplay and lyric writing are very very top notch i mean rico when you talk about the lyrics then you couple that with the music and the level of sophistication between the reggae influences the rock influences the pop the layering of vocals the counter melodies of the please don't stand so close to me that he's got over top of the chorus sure. at the end of the song the it's, jazz chords and the chord progressions are super complex and unique. Right. It's just super like sophisticated songwriting that sounds so 
simple. You know what I mean? And that's what's amazing about it. It's an earworm. It's really catchy. Totally is. Highly sophisticated lyric writing and music. It's just super, super well put together, well crafted. Um, and, and and while you're hold on real quick, and one sure. quick thing, we've both watched that the the Beato video where he talks about Sting, not the interview, but he was talking right. about. I can't remember what song it was, but. He hit the, hit the premise of the video is because of all of those things that you just said, Sting is Sting and the police are uncopyable because right. of all of that stuff. And it's I, it's very well put what you just said. And while we're throwing the accolades, be a good time to mention that this song, one of the few times the Grammys actually got it right in 1982, did win the Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal. Back to excessive misogyny, I'm going to give it a 0.5 as well. It sounds like a cop-out, but I'm only splitting it because it's kind of split in the song right we're seeing it from two different perspectives now again we do to your point we do have to acknowledge that one is an underage person who doesn't have one would assume the mental capacity to necessarily be dealing with these feelings and make uh you know the decisions one should be capable of making but i'm going to split it down the middle anyway let's move on category three wanton whiteness what do you say rika well, remember, they get the obligatory 0.5 because they're white. So we have to give that right off the bat. So we've got um, the subject matter, a teacher having a crush on a student and a student who kind of has a crush on a teacher is a super white topic. Uh, I don't I don't. I, I can't imagine any other culture versus a white culture is going to write that song. Um, not mu- musically. I mean, they're so freaking unique. I mean, there's all, they've got all kinds, they've got reggae influence, which is definitely not white, but they they get for, for me, for me, the subject of the song alone bumps that 0.5 up to a full one i mean you're you're playing on your blonde-headed bombshelledness and how you've got these young girls in in that are your fans that are coming at you and also you're inspired by this book lolita um that you taught when you were an english teacher there is nothing more white about what i just said so i'm gonna give them a full one for whiteness yeah i mean it's interesting the subject matter right because you know, we can buy, hey, this is why they chose to write this song, right? But uh, white guys playing reggae, which is effectively what the police really are, <laughs> right? It's kind of should, ridiculous. Should right? white dudes be playing reggae? Let's let's just ask ourselves that. Uh, I don't know. It's it always comes off a little like hackneyed to me which is which is probably why they had to mix in a little bit of punk a little bit of new wave a little bit of rock like they just couldn't but they do for large vast portions of their catalog just pretty much do straight up reggae which is totally which is always pretty weird right yeah um yeah maybe choosing this as subject matter really choosing like lolita as subject matter (laughs) yeah this is i'm gonna score this one a one a full one rico Let's move on. Category four, malignant machismo. Rico, how do you score? 
this is a tough one for me. I don't know. Um, I mean, you've got again, you've got a uh, the 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 Sting's Sting's style is not. It's not. It's not not machismo, but it's not machismo either. It just kind of lingers in the middle someplace. He's got that. He's got the okay. I've brought this up a couple other times now. Uh, the Blondie episode. Um, he's got the the Debbie Harry, David Bowie coolness, that eternal coolness that just kind of is always there, that never goes away, no matter how old they are. He's in that category. There's that's not doesn't necessarily make him muchismo though, and the song is not really. It's I I gotta give this one a zero, dude. This for me for me this is a zero for machismo. Wasn't it Sting who, like, either on the Howard Stern show or something, remember, he's got his wife, what's his wife's name, Trudy, and they're like, they do the thing where they save the rainforest, but didn't, like, back in the day, it becomes somehow known that Sting would have these marathon fuck sessions with his wife where he could go, like, most men can last, like, you know, 30 seconds, and he would have, like, these marathon bang sessions where sting of course being the manly alpha male that he is sure could hold an erection and not come for like four and a half straight hours of fucking and jesus it was like christ is that re- well i i had i didn't know i didn't know that is that, is that talk- <laughs> yeah they would talk about this on howard stern i think it was howard stern yeah wow. so you know so sting you want to talk about malignant machismo right i mean shit that might change my score right there <laughs> I mean, he's an alpha male, right? I mean, he's kind of all everybody, you know, and he does it without like having his chest puffed out, but he's, he's an alpha, you know, in the biggest way possible. Yeah. Um, thinking back, it's like, remember the era of the, the teachers banging students and not male teachers, but female teachers It kicked off with, uh, remember, uh, what was her name? Mary Kay Latorno or whatever. Remember that story? I totally do. There was like a window of time when it couldn't be out of the news where there were teachers and they were always female. Uh, there were always women with younger male students. And even did that Nicole Kidman movie uh, to die for with yep. Joaquin Phoenix and Matt Dillon's good movie. But it was like around the 90s, right? When this was like, this was in the news, like always. And all these teachers were good looking. And I was thinking, man, when I was in school, none of my teachers were good looking women. They were all elderly women. I had one when I was in high school. I kind of had a crush on her. Of course you did. Uh, yeah, she was, she was, uh, my, my 10th and 11th grade science teacher. And, uh, i still remember her and yeah i did she i did have a crush on her but yeah to your point dude i'm i'm trying to figure out where are these good looking teachers coming from because to your point there was there was really none of that no but there was a window of time a couple years when it was in the news constantly and it's a totally different thing it's like from if it's a male teacher and a young woman completely out of bounds but if it's a young dude and a female teacher, <laughs> as a young guy, you're open to it. Oh, you're a king, man! You're <laughs> you're 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 uh you're hitting a cougar, man. I mean, that's the you get you get bonus points for that, don't you? Right. I mean, there's no psychological damage done at all. If anything, it helps just build up his ego as a young person who's totally. you know, probably dealing with self-esteem issues. So, um. 
malignant machismo. I'm going to give it a 0.5 just for the four and a half hour bang sessions. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, I'm going to stick to my zero because I've rolled back enough scores over the episodes, but I did not know about the marathon fuck sessions, man. Good on you, Gordon, because you are <laughs> the man for yeah. sure. Yeah, and poor Trudy couldn't walk for a week. Jesus um, Christ, I guess not. Our final category as we wrap up our rock and roll autopsy on Don't Stand So Close to Me, not a song about Rico cutting the cheese. Culture <laughs> vulturism. Rico, how do you score? Um, well, you know, you could say, well, they they vultured reggae and they've appropriated reggae in order to... Um, but really, no. See, it, they've only just taken bits and pieces from different musical styles and just put them together in such a unique way that they've just created a sound that, like Rick Beato said, nobody has. The the only I think the only band that I can think of that has come even remotely close to being close to police is sublime in the 90s they kind of had the, or maybe some they kind of did some ska stuff and a little bit of reggae stylings but i can't think of another band that does what the, the what the police did in fact they were so fucking cool and unique that really for all intents and purposes they fucking pulled rush out of their prog phase and got and, and rush actually really kind of copied the police a little bit um, so that's how unique and cool the police were is that they pulled rush out of their prog phase. So this is an absolute zero for me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a zero for me. I think the police are, I don't think we've seen another band like them. I think, um, you know, rush did definitely have a phase of their career, you know, vital signs to me as a police song, right. Where they've definitely had a phase of their career where they were coming pretty close to it, but but even then, I, I I just maybe see a little bit of influence, but Rush to me has always been a its own animal too. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm going to score that a zero as well for culture vulturism. Rico, are you ready to do some math? I, I hope. Um, all right, so I've got I've got a total of two points. And Rico, I've got a total of two point five, which gives us a. Four and a half points. Do you remember our rock and roll autopsy? Yeah, it it rating <laughs> scale. I don't know. It's been two weeks. Um, no, they they landed right in the middle. Um, that's that's right where this song ought to be. It didn't kill rock, but it didn't significantly contribute to it either. Even though it's a cool song, won a Grammy. Um, the police. We've talked about this plenty of times probably wasn't on purpose because sting and Stuart copeland really didn't like each other there for a really long time but the band exited at a perfect time they put that they put out what five albums yeah they got they got out while while they were on top they exited at a perfect time nobody could ever say that they hung on for too long and uh good good on them and so i just landed right where it was supposed to be in my opinion you know, Rico, it just occurred to me as you say that that in a way we spent a good portion of the news section talking about Motley Crue, a band of guys who don't get along and apparently have hung on way too long. 
And on the flip side, we have on the second half of the show, the police, a group of guys who don't get along and did the opposite, got in and got out, you know, five albums, five great albums, not a dud in the catalog and left at the top of the rock and roll world. They were the biggest band in the world when they retired. So kind of like the yin and yang of the way to go about it. Right. Um, totally. You know, both bands having personality issues, but sure thing. One getting out when the getting is good and another hanging on way past their sell by date. Well, and, and recently, you know, the, the police have got together to do some shows and they play their own stuff. So there, there's that too. They play yeah. their own stuff. They sing their own track. They don't no backing tracks, none of that bullshit. So they, 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 man, you can't complain one bit about how sting and Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers have conducted themselves with the band, without the band over the last 40 or so years of their life. They did it absolutely the right way, whether intentionally or on or on accident weirdly underrated too i think oh absolutely i think sting was as good as the band was he like blew up afterwards as a solo act yeah like completely blew up but the which i mean his his solo stuff is great too i mean um what is that dream of the blue turtles and yeah some some of the other stuff his solo stuff is spectacular but soul cages he, oh totally but but uh, all five, to your point, all five albums are superb. Even though the band wasn't super happy with this one, it still turned out pretty damn good. All right, gang. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. It's been a blast. It was Rock and Roll Autopsy. Thank you, Rico. Thank you, Scott. All right. Good night now. Let me have that special rock and roll music. Yeah! Let me tell you, so the lyrics to real rock music is nothing more than satanic cyanide. Get it out of your house, throw it out, and burn it. It has no place in the house of the righteous. You guys, it was like a mistake. There's no mistake anymore. Oh, to the door, love it to the morning. I'm gone. I'm gone. Follow us on Twitter at RNR Autopsy, or you can send an email to rock and roll autopsy at gmail.com. And if we run across anything good, We'll mention it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Later. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs>